Now, wherever you are, let's pause for just a moment and take a deep breath and let's talk to God. Lord, you have taught us in your word and in the example of faithful people who have come before us that regularly and often we need to stop a moment to pay attention to you. And so we want to do that right now as we offer our praise and thanksgiving to you for the gift of this day and this life, this place and these people and this opportunity to open your word and to be opened by it. We recognize that you speak through your word, the word that is written, the word that is Jesus, the word that is with us now and the present power of your Holy Spirit. We come with all kinds of things going on inside of us in our lives, some of them magnificent, some of them just the opposite. But in the midst of all of that, we recognize that you are God. You always have been, you always will. And that we can rest secure in the knowledge of your care and your love, of your correction and encouragement, of your guidance for our lives. Help us to remember these things now as we seek to be open to the gentle nudging of your spirit and the truth that we will learn, especially as we learn about Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Friends, we are in the midst of a study here that I never really quite know what to call it. Is, it's, is this the winter season of study? You know, we have the fall and we have spring, but it's hard to talk about winter. So this is sort of winter going into spring. At any rate, beginning in the first Sunday of January and continuing to Easter on Sunday mornings, we are looking at some of the major titles or names or descriptions or images about Jesus. Understanding, of course, that everything the church does or should be doing is about Jesus, but we're focusing specifically on his role, on the things that he did, the things that he was, the things that he is. And so we're continuing that study today by looking at a couple of passages that at first glance might seem to be unrelated to each other, but there's a very, very strong tie between the two of them. Let's read the Jeremiah passage first. Let me read it and then let's talk a little bit about Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and then also verses 20 through 21. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it were held guilty. Disaster came upon them, says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. To verse 20. For long ago you broke your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not serve. On every high hill and under every green tree you sprawled and played the whore. Yet I planted you as a choice vine from the purest stock. How then did you turn degenerate? and become a wild vine. Cool. Or maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting stuff in there, isn't there? I want to tell you just a little bit about the prophet Jeremiah, about the person, the historical person. Uh, Jeremiah lived and prophesied. He did his work in the southern kingdom of Israel, the part that we call Judah, from about 627 until about 580 before Jesus. Now you remember that Israel had become one nation under David, but then it had divided shortly after that, and it existed really as two kingdoms, the northern part, the, the largest part, called Israel itself, and the southern part, which contained Jerusalem, called Judah. The northern kingdom had fallen to the Assyrian Empire in about 727. And so Jeremiah begins his life in prophecy about a hundred years after the northern kingdom ceased to exist. 
The southern kingdom, Judah, where he lived, was under attack now, kind of a long and continuous sort of siege by the Babylonian Empire. And at the end of Jeremiah's life and time, the Babylonians actually wipe out the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And there begins what we call the exile, when many of the Jews are taken off into Babylon. Some are left there. We've had lots of conversation about that before. Jeremiah grew up in a village outside of Jerusalem itself. It was a village to which one of his ancestors had been banished by King Solomon. The name of the village was Anatoth. It's only a few miles outside of Jerusalem, and so today that doesn't seem like very far, but back then that was a long way away. Let me tell you some of this history, and it might be confusing. The names are hard to get, but the history is important to help us understand sort of the psyche of Jeremiah's family, if you will. About 300 years before Jeremiah, under Solomon, King Solomon, Jeremiah's great, 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 I don't know how many greats to add on there, his great, 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 great grandfather, Abiathar, was banished from Jerusalem and from the priesthood by Solomon. The reason for that is because of what went on with David. You remember David. David actually had several wives and then also had children with Bathsheba. David favored his son from his union with Bathsheba, his son Solomon. Okay, and Solomon eventually became the king of Israel after David. But David had had other children. And David's oldest surviving son was a guy named Adonijah. Okay, we got Adonijah and Abiathar. Okay, now Adonijah was technically in succession, in the, in the official line of succession to become the king of Israel. But David didn't want that to happen. David wanted to give the throne to Solomon. And so Adonijah and David were at odds with each other, and Abiathar, Jeremiah's great-great-great-great-grandfather, was one of the two high priests in Israel at the time. And Abiathar supported Adonijah in Adonijah's claim to the throne. But of course, that didn't work out. Solomon became the king. And so when Solomon became the king, he tried to eliminate all of his enemies. And Abiathar was one of those political enemies. He didn't have him executed. That might have been the case in many situations. But he had him banished to Anatoth. And so 300 years later, into this priestly family is born this fellow named Jeremiah. He's born into a family that has sort of a, a congenital bias against the kings of Israel, against the corruption of the court and the religion and the, the, the priestly leaders in, uh, in, in Jerusalem. Now, isn't that fascinating history? If it sounds like anything that has gone on recently in the world, then that should say something to you. There's nothing new under the sun, right? We read all this scripture and we say, oh, this was back in the time when the prophets were speaking and Jesus was alive and all was hunky-dory and well, no, the world was a mess then. The world still is a mess. That's just the way it is. Let's go home. <laughs> not really, not really. At any rate, Jeremiah clearly grew up in a very religious household. He obviously knew the scriptures. He knew the tradition and history of Israel. He knew about Israel's history and its tendency to get close to God and then to go away from God. And in Jeremiah's time now, let's go back to his time frame. As Israel is struggling to stay alive, the, the nation of Judah, southern kingdom, as Israel struggling to stay alive, Jeremiah looks at the situation and says, you know, every time Israel gets away from its fundamental identity, every time it moves away from its relationship with God, every time it tries to start doing things like the rest of the kingdoms of the world do them, there's trouble. That's not always an automatic relationship, but that's what the prophets of, of Israel saw, is if we get away from Yahweh, from God, from the source of our life, then we're in trouble. And that's essentially Jeremiah's message, the whole book, 
Now, we have that expressed in very, very clear terms here. And I want to talk about some of the language of these few verses that, we, that we've read and show you how that works itself out. Okay, Jeremiah, obviously, like all the prophets, is hearing something or seeing something or sensing something. He's getting a message somehow from God and feels convicted by God to share that message, to proclaim that message to all of Israel. So, speaking for God... Jeremiah begins to talk about the history of the Jewish people with God. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Right there, Jeremiah is giving us an image of Israel's relationship with God, the image of, of lovers, really, right? Have any of you in the room ever fallen in love before? Not a one of you, huh? God, wow, what dull and boring lives you must have, right? <laughs> right? When you fall in love and, and maybe you get married to somebody, they're the only ones for you. Everything is perfect and wonderful and beautiful. But as we know, in the nature of human relationships, maybe you wake up the next morning and you say, what in the world have I done, right? <laughs> Or maybe it takes a few years. Who knows, right? The human heart has a very hard time being 100% loyal, 100% faithful to anything, even to itself. And so one of the ways that the Old Testament characterizes the relationship that God's people have with God is that we fall in love with God and then we turn our backs on God. And so God is reminding Israel, remember you loved me once, as in the devotion of your youth, right? As, as a bride. You even followed me into the wilderness. Everything that Israel thought about itself after the escape from Egypt was colored by that, that deliverance. That really is such a fundamental event in Israel's life. You followed me into the wilderness, into a land not sown, into, in, into the desert. You loved me so much and you were so devoted to me that you went anywhere with me. How many of you have ever said to someone, I'm in love with you, I'll go wherever you want to go. I'll do whatever you want to do, right? Helen has said that to me before. <laughs> Right? Right? She said it to me about 22 years ago when she said, Jack, it's time for us to leave Tucson, and I will, I will follow you wherever the Lord leads you except for California. <laughs> it's a true story. Some of you have heard that story before. You know, I'm feeling God's call to anywhere but California, and God was listening to the conversation. <laughs> right? You followed me into the wilderness. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Israel understood that when God claimed Israel, when God created Israel as his own people, through Abraham and all that whole story that you've studied before, that Israel had a special purpose in the world. They themselves were not special. They understood that. They're just people. But God is special, and God had a special role for Israel to be a light to all the nations in order to redeem all the nations, in order to bring the whole world back to himself. Israel was God's first fruits. Now, first implies what? That there's going favored? Absolutely. First is favored, when you say, though, this is the first thing, it implies there's going to be a second thing and a third thing, right? Israel was meant to be the beginning of something. So in all of those ways, Jeremiah, speaking the voice of God, is reminding Israel who it is. You're the first fruits of God's harvest. But there's a problem. Jeremiah continues, all who ate of it were held guilty. Disaster came upon them, says the Lord. Now here the image is switched. It's hard for us to keep all the images in mind because we don't live with them every day. But do you remember that way back when God had said to the people of Israel, I want you to take the first fruits of your harvest and give it back to me. Turn it over to me. Okay, this is a stewardship sermon hidden in disguise right here, right? 
That's what God asks us to do, to take the first that we produce and give it back to him. The principle is very simple. God has given it to us, and in order for us to recognize that and to live by that truth, God asks us then to give it back to him. Now, there's going to be a whole lot more harvest. That's the implication. We're going to have plenty, but we give the first back to God. Here, though, Jeremiah says, you ate of the first fruits. You didn't give it back to me. You took it for yourselves. That's one of the ways that that God says that we have forsaken our relationship with him. Disaster came upon them, says the Lord. Now, the disaster, as you talk about that through the history of Israel, manifested itself in so many different ways. During Jeremiah's time, the disaster was what had happened a hundred years earlier when the northern kingdom had fallen and what was now happening to the southern kingdom and would come to completion in about 587 as the southern kingdom falls to the Babylonians. That's the disaster we're talking about, right? Now, let's keep going with this conversation. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. All the families of the house of Israel. We think of Israel as being one nation, right? But in some sense, Israel was kind of like the United States today. Israel was a nation made out of many nations, if you will. Israel was was comprised of 12 distinct groups of people that had descended from the, the, the 12 tribes, from the 12 sons of Jacob, right? David had made Israel great because David found a way to take those original 12 colonies and unite them together. Oh, I said colonies, didn't I? It's kind of like the United States history. 12 independent states and federate them together, okay? So Israel was comprised of those 12 tribes. But now, after several hundred years of history, those 12 tribes have, have multiplied, they have intermarried, they have, they have divided. Who really is of the nation of Israel? Who is, we would say today, a Jew? Well, Jeremiah's message is to all Jews everywhere whether they are living in the old northern kingdom that's now part of Assyria, whether they've escaped to Egypt at some time or other, uh, whether they may eventually be deported into Babylon, whoever you are, if you have any lineage or trace of your life that goes back to Abraham, that's who Jeremiah is talking to. And then, of course, in chapter 2, really throughout the whole, the whole book, Jeremiah is delivering God's word. I wanted to lift out just a piece of that word from verses 20 and 21. God says, long ago you broke your yoke and burst your bonds and said, I will not serve. Right? Here's yet another idea that describes our relationship with God. We are called to be obedient to exactly one thing. God. But Israel broke its bonds. Israel refused to serve God. Now, a lot of people today do not like to talk about obedience unless we're training our dog or our husband. That's another story, right? But Israel understood that the only way that you and I can have everything that we need and everything that we truly want is by being obedient to God. We broke the bonds of relationship with God. You could say we we broke those bonds when God gave the Ten Commandments, and as Moses was coming down the mountain, the people had already started worshiping another God. So many instances of that in the history of Israel, right? You have on every high hill and every under every green tree, you've sprawled and played the whore. This is nothing that we talk about usually in children's stories on Sunday morning. But it's really important for us to understand. The, the predominant pagan religion of the day was the religion of the worship of Baal. You usually say Baal. Have you heard that term before? The god Baal, okay? It really should be pronounced Baal, B-A-A-L. It's not like a, a you know, King Salmon's bomb, Baal bonds or anything like that. It's B-A-A-L. Baal was the name of the male version of the pagan god Asherah. Sometimes you'll see the word Asherah in the Old Testament. Asherah was the female version of the pagan god. Much ancient pagan religion was based on the idea that we have to be good and we have to sacrifice to the gods so that they will give us a fruitful harvest and, and, and lots, of, lots of baby sheep. 
so that we can eat. And so lots of ancient religion basically worshipped reproduction. And in ancient uh, fertility, we call them the fertility cults, uh, they, they reenacted or, or lifted up and, or symbolized sexuality, the sexual act. And so the way that you worshipped Baal was that you went up to, usually there would be a little temple somewhere on a hill because the hills are where the gods live, and there would be a pillar, a phallic symbol. Or you would go to a play, a lush green place where you would worship Asherah, a representation of fertility. And so what Jeremiah is saying here is you have gone to those high hills to the temples of Baal, or you've gone to the green trees to the temples of Asherah, and you have prostituted yourself. Isn't that a powerful, powerful image? I wanted to describe it to you in some detail because it is so powerful. Again, Israel understands its relationship with God as the relationship of lovers even in some sense. That's how close and intimate it is meant to be. And Jeremiah is describing just how disastrously it, that relationship has been broken. And then he adds another image on top of it. Yet I planted you, this is God speaking, yet I planted you as a choice vine from the purest stock. How then did you turn degenerate and become a wild vine? Anybody here own a vineyard? Good for you. You're my new best friend. No. <laughs> right? In, in the ancient Middle East, in the modern Middle East, in lots of parts of the world, viniculture is a big deal, right? How many of you like to eat grapes? I like to eat grapes. I like to eat frozen grapes, actually. Frozen grapes are really good, right? How many of you like to drink Welch's grape juice? How many of you like to drink grape juice that's a little bit older than that? <laughs> okay, okay, right? For... for 6th century Jews or 1st century Jews or anybody in that region, the, the vision, the image of a grapevine was a very common sort of thing. And here Jeremiah says that Israel is like a beautiful, beautiful grapevine. The choicest stock, the best there is. That's what God meant for Israel to be. And yet now Israel is acting like a degenerate and wild vine, right? Okay, so now you own a vineyard. I'm assuming you know something about, about grapes, okay? So I'm not going to ask you to talk about that. That'd be putting you on the spot. But I'm just, I'm just, you know, this is a disclaimer right now. I'm going to talk about vineyards, and I've never actually, well, my dad has some grapevines in the backyard, but he took care of them. I don't know anything about, about vineyards, really. What I do know is that you take the root stock, and you oftentimes graft new things onto it, right, in order to create different kinds of grapes or to propagate the line of that stock, right? And in the process of, of, of being a good horticulturalist or, or a good uh, keeper of the vineyard, you sometimes have to prune the branches back and you tie them and twist them around little strings so that you can get to the grapes easy. You do all kinds of things to look after the vines, don't you? God has been doing that, but Israel has turned its back on God and no longer allows God to take care of Israel. And so Israel is a degenerate and wild vine. Now, take all of what I've just shared with you and hold it there for a second. Because now I want to go to the New Testament passage. And then I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit. In the Gospel according to John... Chapter 15, the portion we're going to read is from part of the conversation that Jesus has with the disciples on the night that he is betrayed, arrested, and taken into custody by the Jews, and then executed the next day. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make, make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. 
Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Okay, a couple of comments and I want to ask you some questions. You see where the connection is between these two passages, don't you? The image of the vine, right? Jeremiah has said that Israel is like the vine, the vine that God has planted. It is meant to flourish and grow and bless the whole earth. But Israel has given up on that, has turned away from that, has prostituted itself from that. Now we are... 580 years later, probably 610 or 620 years later. And Jesus starts describing to the disciples who he is. He does so in many different ways, of course. But here he uses that fascinating image, saying to the disciples, I am the vine. What is Jesus saying there? Now, I've talked enough for a while. I'm sure that at least in a couple of you, there's something stirring on in your minds. What do you think the scripture is saying here about who Jesus is? What questions does this arise in you? What does this say to you? He's the source. Yes, he is the source. The vine, the root, is the source of the life of the rest of it, right? God meant for Israel to be the source of the life of the whole world. And now Jesus says, I am that source. Isn't that interesting? Good comment. Yes, I am the true vine. Indicating perhaps that there are false vines, right? You might say that Israel in its moving away from God has grafted itself onto other vines that are not going to produce the fruit that God wants, right? Right? Now, you could follow that line of thought and say, what are those other untrue vines out there? You know, for Israel, it was the worship of Baal and all the things that flowed from that that were not true life. What would they be for us today? That's a good question to ask. What else? Yes? You will wither unless you take... Uh, use me as your source. You will wither unless you use me as your source. Exactly, exactly. We have, I think we have some cut flowers right there, don't we? Are those cut, Terry? Okay. You know what my dad would call those? He would say they're dead. My dad hated cut flowers for lots of different reasons. But one of the reasons was once it's lopped off, it's dead. Am I wrong about that? No, it will wither and die, right? The branch withers and dies if it is cut off from its source. It's, all of these are such simple illustrations, but they're so profound. They say things to us, don't they? Yes, over here. I was going to say tulips don't die because they continue to grow once you put them in water. So tulips continue to grow once you put them in water. Right. Cool. Okay, see, there I am corrected. No. <laughs> Because they take their nutrients and stuff from the water, okay? But eventually, that tulip will die, right? Yes. He also said, without me, you would do nothing. Does that mean that we think we do things, and then you can realize, oh, God wasn't in me, so what I did was nothing? Is that, is that what it means? Yes. Without me, you can do nothing, right? Without me, you can do nothing. What Jesus means is that any, the way I think of it, any of the good that you or I do in the world ultimately has its source in, in God, in Jesus, okay? We're going to use Jesus and God really interchangeably here, okay? 
The more that you are connected to the vine, though, the stronger you grow in the vine, the more good you're going to do, right? We planted some fruit trees a few years ago, and, and like most fruit trees, there's a, there's a root stock, and then they've grafted a branch onto the root itself. Well, some of the grafts are better than others, and the tree that results is better if it's a better graft, right? The tree is taking its nourishment. And so Jesus is saying that the, the more closely aligned we are with him, the more deeply we are in relationship with him, the more we love him. He talks about some ways that we do that. Then the more actual fruit that is going to come forth from us. And the more we move away from him, disregard him, the more we try to produce our own fruit, which kind of like the tulip bulb. Aha, light bulb goes on. Kind of like the tulip. You can go for a little while without the vine, but eventually you're going to die. Right? So let's talk for a second. How does Jesus say we are connected to him? How, how are we nourished and maintained in that relationship with him? What are the things that happen? The Holy Spirit makes it happen. Right? The Holy Spirit opens us and, and convicts us and convinces us to turn back to Jesus. Absolutely. Once the Spirit does that, then what happens? What do we do? Prayer and in the Word and fellowship. Notice Jesus says several times in this conversation, right? You have been cleansed by the Word that I have spoken to you. Okay, there's a yet another image. You're dirty. If you're away from God, you need to be cleaned up. You need to be renewed and restored, right? You need to abide in me, right? Uh, but, but, but it, my words, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, right? Keeping the commandments. Yes, exactly. Remember, it's been a while since we've talked about the commandments in here. Remember that the commandments of God, the law of God, if you will, the moral, ethical, spiritual uh, ideal of what we are meant to be that is upheld in Scripture is not God saying to us, I make the rules, you have to follow them. It is God saying to us, I made the rules, and if you actually want to have life, you're going to follow the rules, and so the rules are a good thing. Here is how you use the life you have. Here is how you live the life you have. It's like a machine that you're given, right? If you know how to use the machine, it will accomplish the, accomplish the thing that you bought it to do. If you don't know how to use it, it won't work. It reminds me of a story about a chainsaw, but that's another story. Do you know that story? Do you know that story? Let's see if I can remember it and tell it quickly enough here. So um, there was a big woodcutting competition. And all these woodcutters came from, from all over the world to cut wood. And they gave them chainsaws and sent them out into the forest. And the world's greatest woodcutter came back after the first day and he was just sweating and exhausted and tired and, and he had not cut as much wood as all the others had. But it was a three-day competition. So they, they sent him all out the next day and he brought back again a pile of wood, but it wasn't as big as the piles of wood as all the others, right? He was the world's greatest woodcutter. Well, the third day, you've heard this one, haven't you? The third day, he came back, and, and he was even more exhausted and just completely flummoxed, and the whole world was wondering, wow, have it, how is it that you haven't cut as much wood as everybody else has? We expected you to win this competition. And so the judge of the competition came over and took the guy's chainsaw and thought, well, something must be wrong with the chainsaw, and he pulled the cord, and we went, the chainsaw all starts up and the woodcutter says what's that sound <laughs> oh no see he didn't he didn't know how to use the machine uh -oh. Uh, uh oh there we go at any rate did that have a point was there a reason I was telling that story yeah, I'm sure it did I'm sure it did the point is Jesus says I am the root of everything I am the source of all life. That's how the church came to understand who Jesus was. 
Just as Israel of the life of Israel was meant to be the source of true life with God, Jesus now is the the complete and absolute uh, and best expression and manifestation of God in the world. Jesus is like all of Israel in one person. If you have a relationship with God through the life of Israel, you have a relationship with God. If you have a relationship with Jesus now, you have a relationship with the source of all life, the one who tells you how it is meant to be lived, the one who shows you how it's meant to be lived, the one who encourages and corrects and guides and fills you with his power so that you can live it. If you don't have that, you don't have life. Does that make sense to you? It's a pretty simple illustration. So what does that call us to do then? There we go. We're supposed to produce fruit. If we're not producing fruit, what do you, what do, you do with, the, with the branches and the vine? Chopped off, cut. So one of the ways, one of the ways that you and I can look at our lives in Jesus and, and sort of evaluate how things are going is to say, what fruit is there? You know, am, am I hopelessly depressed and lost and angry and vile and mean and violent? And am I all these terrible, horrible things? Well, maybe you're not close enough to Jesus, right? None of us are completely close to Jesus, right? I can look around here and, and see manifestations of that evil in every single one of you. Thank you for laughing. That was meant to be a joke, yes, okay? <laughs> right? So take the opposite of that. When you, what is the fruit of a life with Jesus? Paul talks about that a lot. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, Laura, get in on this. Yeah, good question. Why, why do some people do a lot of good things and there's a lot of fruit, but they don't, they, their source is not in Jesus, right? At least they wouldn't say that. And conversely, why do people who say they're really close to Jesus do such terrible things? Okay? Those are great questions. Thank you for asking them. <laughs> Here's what I think about them. And, and in a way, there's never a full resolution to this. Number one, people who do good things who don't know God through Jesus. Um, I think that they actually do know God. They may not realize that they do. I think that God does good things through people, even though they wouldn't necessarily recognize it in that way. And scripture has some stories like that. Uh, who was it? Um, um, Rahab, right? In the Old Testament, Rahab doesn't know God, but she saves the spies from Israel and saves God's whole plan. The Roman centurion who sends his servant to Jesus and says, you know, my daughter's sick. I need help. Roman didn't know the Jewish God, but there was something in him that was of God. God can do whatever he wants to do in anybody's life whether they even recognize it or not, right? So that's one thing I would say, is that wherever you see goodness, true goodness, there is a manifestation of the power and the Spirit of God at work, whether people will recognize that or not, okay? Clearly, though, we want people to recognize where the source is so that they can get even more so in touch with it and understand where it comes from. Now, the other side, people who say they know Jesus but the fruit's a little iffy, okay? Two things go on there. One is that everybody who knows Jesus is not perfect. And we know that, right? You all know that. We who follow Jesus do so because we know we're not perfect and we're wanting to work on that process. We're wanting God to work on that in us and sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. With that said... I think you do have to ask very serious questions when there is a lack of fruit or when there's an abundance of bad fruit. Then a, a person is called to seriously examine what their relationship with God is all about. And it's up to the community of God's people to help people do that, right? Um, 
An example I was thinking of the other day, I, uh, this is an old, old story. I knew a couple of guys, uh, they were four years older than I was, and they started college uh, when I was starting high school in my little hometown. And one came from Bakersfield, one came from Phoenix. The one from Bakersfield was a Presbyterian, the one from Phoenix was a Baptist. The one from Bakersfield, as a college freshman, when they started sharing a room together, uh, plastered Playboy centerfolds all over the walls of the room, even though he was a good Christian guy. And the one from Phoenix said, you know, there's a problem with that. And so the one from Phoenix helped the one from Bakersfield see the problem with that. That's part of what Christians are called to do with and for each other, is to call each other out when our fruit is not what it's supposed to be. Does that make sense to you? And so that can be a very difficult thing to do. It's best done in close Christian community. Those two guys became best of friends, still are very close. I'm still close to them. Uh, and, and, and that, but that was a beautiful example of how the Christian community is meant to encourage and correct each other. Have any of you ever been corrected by a sister or brother in Christ over a behavior or an attitude or, or a misconception, a misunderstanding or bad theology? Has that ever happened with you? I sure hope it has. Have you ever corrected someone else? That's tough to do, right? But there's lots in the, in the Christian experience that talks about the fundamental bonds of love and peace and unity that we have each other because of our relationship with Jesus. And that's part of what we're meant to do is to, is to be God's pruning hook with each other. That's a long answer to what you had to say, but that's part of the dynamic that goes on there. What else comes out of this for you? Yes, you look at all people, whether they believe in God or not, and say that person is part of God's creation. That person is a child of God. Yes, I think that's a great place to start in your relationships with other people. Right? And it's especially helpful when you are moving into a relationship with someone that you're not sure it's going to work out. Right? Um, let's pick some people that we might think would be hard to get along with. I'm not talking about your in-laws. I'm talking about, but maybe, maybe I am talking about your in-laws, right? Every person is a child of God, a creation of God, right? And God has been working with that person. Did you ever think about that? Every person alive, God has been saying something to them. Whether they've paid attention or not, God has been saying something to them. That's fascinating, yeah. What else comes out of this for you? Yes. I watched the movie Breakthrough about the young man who broke through the ice and they were trying to resuscitate him and they were trying mm -hmm. to find him. And the, the uh, first responder thought he heard someone say, go back down and check one more time. And mm -hmm. he did, and he found him. And they did save this kid, but later he talked to someone and he said... Uh, um, I don't believe in God. He says, but so who, who told me to go back down there? And it just challenged him that God somehow worked through this man to, to get, get this kid, and he didn't believe in it. And he said, I don't believe in God, but who else could have? He said, I heard a voice. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was my captain telling me to go back down, and the captain said, I didn't tell you to do that. Yeah. There's nothing in Scripture that says you have to believe in God in order for yeah. God to talk to you. Go back to Abraham. We're told nothing about Abraham other than he was minding his own business in, in Iraq. And God showed up and said, hi, here I am. And boy, is your life going to change, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What else comes up out of this for you? Um, yes. For me, it's the notion of abiding. Abiding. Oh, Abiding, good. Abiding, just sort of this, the gentle surrender. Maybe it's not so gentle, but it's definitely a surrender to God's ongoing graciousness and that it's a long-term relationship, that mm -hmm. it's not just maybe that, that voice telling you to go back down in the ice, but it is a way of life of just abiding, sort of relaxing into God. Yes. God's arms. Yes, thank you for lifting up the word abide. How many of you use that term in regular conversation? None of us do. If we do, 
The only times I hear it is when we say, I can't abide that. (laughs) Right? And even then we don't use the term very much. But abide is a really, really good word. The life of following Jesus is not about instant gratification. It's about what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. How many of you are really good at something? I bet all of you are really good at something, right? Are you better at it today than you were 10 years ago? I'm not talking about golf. Golf is the only exception here, (laughs) right? If you're going to be good at something, or if you're going to have something that is truly valuable, it takes time. And one of the facts of the Christian life is that we are meant to abide with Jesus. It's a long-term committed relationship. That's what you get the best result from, okay? And it's not an occasional relationship. That term abide means to hang with it. And what Jesus is after is 24-7-365, hanging with Jesus, hanging with God. That's, that's my translation of abide. Those who hang with me, those who chill out with me, those who are with me always are the ones who are going to produce the fruit. Now, this is sort of like preaching to the choir because the vast majority of Christians in the world don't ever come to a weekly Bible study. And more and more Christians in the Western world don't even come to worship very often. Not that they're not abiding in Jesus in some other way. There's lots of ways to abide in Jesus, but those are two of the primary ways that the church has always had. Worship and the study of Scripture. There's a third way that you all are involved with, and that is abiding with a small handful of each other. Most of you are clustered in tables with the people that you abide with to talk about the Scriptures and to share your lives with each other and to pray for each other and to be with each other. This is the heart of the Christian experience here in many ways. And it's all about abiding in and with Jesus. I don't know if you think that way when you're driving to Bible study on Wednesday mornings. You know, most of you are worried about whether the egg casserole is going to stay hot or whatever that is, you know. And that's fine. That's worthy of your concern. But do you ever say to yourselves, I'm going this morning to have a chance to abide with Jesus and to abide with other people who are abiding with Jesus and to strengthen our graft into the vine a little bit more. That's what you're doing. We should have had wine this morning. Maybe not. (laughs) I don't know. Is there such a thing as a good breakfast wine? I don't know. (laughs) Right? What's that? You can drink wine at any time. Yes, yes. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. In fact, let's see, it's 10 o'clock here. So it's 8 o'clock in the evening in Beirut, right? I got lots of friends in Beirut now. I'm always thinking about, what time is it in Beirut? What's going on there, right? You see, yes. The question was, would our coming to Bible study be like fertilizer? Does anybody else have a comment? No, no. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely it is. You see, all of these different images, we're talking about the soil, we're talking about what you, what you derive. What does the vine do, right? Let's talk about what the vine does. The vine reaches down into the soil to suck up the moisture and the nutrients, the fertilizer from which our life comes. Right? So that's another thing that you're coming here to do is, is to suck up some fertilizer. And in the way it works and the way God has made things to be, you are meant to be fertilizer to somebody else. There's a great sermon I could preach there, but it would be the last one I've done. I don't know. Isn't this fun? Yeah. Doreen. There's something else that I think we all need to think about, and that is when tragedy does hit, Mm -hmm. there is someone that we can reach out to that will hold us Mm -hmm. and give us strength. And perhaps one of the things that we can do as Christians, when we do have a tragedy, we can show 
what being a Christian is all about. Mm -hmm. Fellowship is something that people miss if they have no relationship with God. Yeah. And Our that's a loss. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Our fellowship with each other is meant to be identical in its dynamics to our fellowship with God, right? John would say, if you say you love God but don't love, love everybody else, then you don't love God. And if you, if, you, um, if you do love other people, then you are participating in some way in the love of God, which takes us back to the, to the non-Christian question. People who love other people are participating in some way in the reality of the presence of God. Whether they'll identify it the same way as I do or you do or not is another question, right? To talk about the storms of life, right? When, when, when there's a drought, when there's a hurricane, which plants survive the best? The strongest ones. The ones that have the deepest roots, right? If you see a really, really old tree, you know that's a tough tree. The same is true of people in some sense. Now, we don't get to choose exactly how long our lives last. But I look at, at 100 and 200 and 300 year old people and say they're really tough. <laughs> you know, some people look at, you know, we were just, we were just talking about, about your mom a, a few minutes ago, right? She, was she 101? Is that what she was when she died? 100 years old, okay? Helen was 100 years old. She was the sweetest, kindest, calmest, gentlest, most beautiful little old lady you'd ever hope to see, and she was tough as nails because she was grounded deeply in a relationship with Jesus. Yeah, yeah. See where you can go with all these things? Isn't this fun? Ultimately, what it goes to, and we'll wind up with this now, you're going to cut me off. Um, where this image of Jesus goes, Jesus as the vine, it points us always to Jesus as the vine. In his words, in his actions, in his example, in his lessons, in the, thing, the way he lived his life and the things that he did to stay connected to God. In all of that, Jesus is teaching us how to be connected to the very source of our lives. He is that source, of course, we say, not only because he is God, but we believe that he is God because not even all the death and all the evil of the world could destroy him. He proved that he is that everlasting vine source of life for us. That's what makes Christians Christians is we believe that that all exists in Jesus. And so our one job is just always to stay very close to Jesus. There's the challenge. So you have some questions at the end of your lesson and you have more questions inside your minds. That's something great to talk about and think about later on this morning and for the rest of the week. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have not hidden the knowledge, but you have spread it full for us to see and to know and to understand the knowledge of how we can have abundant and eternal life. Thank you for showing that to us in Jesus. Thank you for making that real to us in the power of the spirit that is with us. Help us to encourage each other in that and help us to take one more step in this long and obedient journey of following you so that others will see the love that we have for you and for each other and so that we will weather the storms of life and so that we will ultimately move into that eternal joy of knowing you. In Jesus we pray, amen. God bless you all. See you next week, the Lord willing.